Romans chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. Let me read these verses and pray and then we'll begin. Paul says in verse 30, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning, the great privilege to stand and to preach your word today. God, we do not, I do not take that lightly. Thank you, Lord, for your people in this place who've come to hear a message from you. And Lord, we know that a message from a man might inform us, but a message from Almighty God transforms us. And Lord, that's our greatest need today is to hear from you. Lord, to hear your word. Lord, that we might be transformed and continually that transformation process from glory to glory into the image of your son. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you will speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. This past January, I took our grandson, nine-year-old John David, to Tampa, Florida. We went down for a championship game that was going to be played down there. And that afternoon, we got to the stadium, and John David was decked out in his orange. He's a huge Clemson fan. Now, I had an Alabama hat and probably a red shirt. don't remember exactly, but we were down there, one for the Tide, one for the Tigers. And we got there early, uh, and we were kind of looking around the place, got something to eat, went to the game day, all the festivities that they had there. And so as we were kind of making our way around, they had a football toss. And you're, you get three balls, and you can throw it into the target there. Now, let me just tell you a little bit. I mean, I know this sounds braggadocious, but I played quarterback in high school. I was the backup quarterback, played quarterback in high school when we had a couple of times our starter was out. And so, you know, I knew I've been throwing a football all my life. As a matter of fact, at the University of Alabama, one day, Coach Mal Moore came over to me and said, Keith, Coach Bryant wants you to start working at quarterback. A lot of people probably, I don't think I've ever told Teresa this, but I was Alabama's quarterback for one day. Anyway, I, I, I remember going over to the centers. I was so excited. Visions of Joe Namath in my mind, Kenny Stabler, but, and Coach Bryant was standing right there. So I get behind Dwight Stevenson, our center, and now, hut, and I do this, like quarterbacks do. Coach Bryant, no, 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 no. So you do this. So uh, I realized real quick, I was not going to be a great passer. He set me straight. But anyway, back to Tampa. So I said, John David, let, let me go first. I'll show you how to do it. And so I step up there, clink, give me another ball, clink. All right, I got it, yeah, win, clink, three times, I miss it. What's worse is little John David steps up there, first throw, soup, right through the middle, right through. I'd been throwing a football all my life, and I missed the target. John David, as a nine-year-old, steps up there the first time, Bullseye, bullseye. That's what Paul is saying in a religious term about the Jews and the Gentiles. That the Gentiles, they weren't looking for righteousness. They weren't concerned. They had never practiced righteousness. But yet somehow by God's grace, they found it. And the Jews who'd been pursuing righteousness all of their life, they missed the target the ones who knew the most about God did not come to know God, while the ones who knew the very least about God came to know God best. 
Paul says, what shall we say then? This is amazing. See, Paul's passion was for his countrymen, the Jews. We've already seen that. So let's, that's point number one. Let's look at Paul's passion for Israel's salvation and its application to us today because it's very applicable to our situation. Paul had said back in chapter nine, he said, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. What's Paul saying there? I wish I could take their punishment. I wish I could be accursed. In other words, Paul said, I wish I could take the wrath of God on myself for the sake of my brethren. Now, how many parents would do that for your children? You know, how many, we do that for people we genuinely, passionately love. I would take your punishment gladly, gladly. And that's what Paul was saying there, because I love the Jewish people. Again, here in chapter nine, verse 30, he's saying the same thing. What shall we say then? What are we to make of this fascinating situation? The Gentiles have stumbled upon righteousness while not pursuing it. And the Jews have stumbled over righteousness while trying to achieve it. Paul said, this is amazing. It's really unbelievable. It ought not to be this way. So what he's doing is he's beginning, he's comparing the Gentiles' reception of the gospel by faith to the Jews' rejection of the gospel. Just to kind of put all this in context, for the first 29 verses, we've heard how God is sovereign over creation. God is sovereign over salvation. That God says, I will harden whom I will harden. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And so we've seen this God's sovereignty in salvation. And so we read that and we say, oh, that's why the Jews were lost. It was not a part of God's plan. But now, no, God says, verses 30 through 33, here's the reason they were lost. They rejected the gospel. What do we see as we've talked about? Kobe and I have mentioned this. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility all throughout scripture. You cannot hang your hat on one or the other to the neglect of the other. The Jews were responsible because they had sought after the wrong kind of righteousness. They had rejected the gospel of righteousness through Jesus Christ. So we see the Jews' lostness. Chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For their salvation. Notice what Paul says. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. See, Paul reminds us just in a subtle way that although the Jews were religious, they were lost. Now, some people today feel like as long as you're sincere, you're okay. Have you ever heard that? As long as you're sincere in your belief, the, the, the Jews have their way, the Muslims have their way, the Buddhists have their way, and who am I to... You try telling that to Apostle Paul. <laughs> no way. No way. Paul's heart's desire, his prayer to God was for their salvation, that they would come to know the righteousness of God through Christ. But notice what he, what he does here. My, my heart's desire, my prayer. I want us to see this morning how these two work together. See, Paul understood that even though people were different had different beliefs, a different understanding maybe of righteousness, 
had a different background, Paul didn't just write them off. He didn't just write them off. It'd been so easy for him just to, to, to write them off, but he didn't. Notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. He said, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those under the law as under the law, though not being under, the, under myself under the law. So why? That I might win those who are under the law. And he goes on to say, to the weak, I became weak. But finally, he says this, I become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Church, here I think we see a biblical approach to evangelism. Paul desired and Paul prayed. Paul's desires expressed in his willingness to, as he said in chapter nine, to take their punishment. I mean, that's a desire That's in a thought of an expression. And so Paul had this desire that they be saved, but he did much more than that. Paul's desire led to action. That's why Paul, for the sake of the gospel, because people are lost without Christ, he was willing to become all things to all people. He was not appalled by people who do not believe as he did. Think about that. He was not appalled by people who did not believe as he believed. What did he do? He said, I become all things to all people. He used common ground to establish an opportunity to share the gospel. To the Jew, I became as a Jew. Why? So that some might be saved. To those who were without the law, I became like those without the law. Why? So that some might be saved. Do you see Paul's desire here with the gospel? It was for the salvation of men and women, boys and girls, so that men and women might be saved. All for the sake of the gospel, I become all things to all people. So his desire. Now, there's probably a lot of people here say, you know, I would desire for people to get saved. I desire for my husband to know Christ, my wife, my children. I remember one day as a college student, I was talking about ministry and all the things I wanted to see happen. And and the guy who was discipling me, he said, let's turn to Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, four says this, the soul of the sluggard desires (laughs) and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be rewarded. What does that mean? It's not enough for us to desire that people get saved. It's not enough for us to desire for men and women, boys and girls to come to know Christ, that we must act on our desires. Paul did that. He became all things to all people. We see that so clearly in the New Testament. He was shipwrecked on his mission trips. He went without food. He went without sleep. He was beaten. He was stoned. Why? Because he desired that men and women, boys and girls, come to know Jesus. So Paul acted on his desires. But also notice that he prayed. He prayed for the salvation of Israel. Paul knew that God was the one who draws men and women, boys and girls to himself. So Paul has given us one of the clearest teachings on the sovereignty of God in salvation in Romans 9, uh, particularly Romans 9, 1 through 29. He's told us about the sovereignty of God in salvation. God says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll harden whom I'll harden. And now we see how this works out in evangelism. You know, those who would say, well, God's sovereignty in salvation relieves us of any responsibility in evangelism. If that's what you're thinking this morning, you're mistaken. If you read Romans 9 and say, oh, well, God's got it all under control. Hey, 
You've missed it. You've missed it. All you have to do is look at the life of the apostle Paul. My heart's desire and my prayer is for their salvation. Their salvation. I like what the old preacher said. Paul worked like it all depended on him and prayed like it all depended on God. I like that. Paul's desire led him to action. Paul's prayer led him to faith, to trust in God. There we see the the sovereignty of God in evangelism. And so I hope this morning that you have a desire to see lost people come to Christ. I hope that you have a desire for your loved ones to know Jesus and to find eternal life in his name. And that you'll act on that desire, but also that you'll be a man or woman of prayer. As Paul says here in verse 1, praying to God for their salvation. This is how we balance God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in evangelism, in salvation. But as we begin to see in verse 31, Israel was lost because they had rejected the gospel. Israel was lost because and accountable because they had not received the righteousness of God through Christ. Look at verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Here's, again, their problem. For I testify, verse 2, about them that they have a zeal for God. A zeal for God. Paul mentioned that in what Pastor Colby read a while ago in Ephesians chapter 3. Zealous for God. Paul says, I was zealous for God. What is zeal? Zeal is desire on steroids. I mean, you may have a desire, but boy, when it moves to zeal, it's on steroids. It's really pumped up. And so they're zealous for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Verse three, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means that Israel had a problem with righteousness. And Paul gives us several reasons about that. But let me, let me just kind of go back here for just a second. You know, when we talk about righteousness, when we talk about the Jews' righteousness and our righteousness. What exactly are we talking about? Paul had already said, my heart's desire and prayer for them is for their salvation. Now he's talking about righteousness. Let me tell you, righteousness is salvation. Salvation is righteousness. The righteousness that Paul is talking about is our standing before God how we stand in the eyes of God. See, it's important for us to understand, you know, in our Baptist culture and lingo, hey, when were you saved? Oh, I was saved September 1975, Bryant Hall, room 301. I gave my heart to Christ. And you probably can answer the same question. So when were you saved? That's my salvation. 
If I came up and said, hey, when were you declared righteous in the eyes of God? We'd say, huh? You're getting it over my head. No, let me tell you, the moment that you experienced salvation, you were declared righteous in the eyes of God. And so that's what Paul is telling the Jews here. You've missed it. You've been religious all of your life, but you've missed salvation because you've missed, misunderstood and misapplied the righteousness of God. Paul said, your problem is you think that you can work your way, your life. You can live a life that God will say, oh, you're so good. Come into my heaven. Does it work like that? No. See, they had a problem with righteousness. Salvation occurs when we become righteous in the eyes of God. And they had missed it. They had missed righteousness. See, the Jews had a problem, the same problem we have. Romans 3.10, you know what that says? They're none righteous. No, not one. Wait a second. No, not one. There are none righteous. No, not one. See, no one can stand before a holy God in their own righteousness. See, the Jews were a great example of this. They strived and worked all their life only to achieve the wrong righteousness. They had practiced all day, every day, and they missed the target. And the Gentiles just walked up there. Hey, tell me about Jesus. Okay, zoop, I believe. Good, you're righteous. You're righteous. They're declared righteous by faith. They simply believed the gospel and they got it and the Jews missed it. See, the, the Jews are a great example of people who had the wrong righteousness. Notice what Paul said, verse 31. They pursued a principle of righteousness, but never attained it. Verse 32, they pursued righteousness by works, not by faith. Chapter 10, verse 2. They had a religious zeal, but without knowledge. Now, we know something about religious zeal today, don't we? There are many people in our world today with tremendous religious zeal. Some of us would call them terrorists. Terrorists. But let me tell you, terrorism in the name of religion has happened for centuries and centuries and centuries. Just because we have a zeal does not mean that we're right. Paul said they had a zeal, but they did not have knowledge. Chapter 10, verse 3, they sought to establish their, quote, own righteousness instead of God's. Chapter 10, verse 3, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's where faith comes in. So we can, we can sum up all their problems by saying this. They tried to achieve a righteousness in their own eyes, a righteousness that is achieved by works, by what they would do. See, there are two problems with this. A works righteousness underestimates the ugliness of sin. Now, this is so applicable to us in the South. Oh, I'm a good person. I'm a good guy. You know, I'm not the best, but I'm not the worst. See, we fail to understand the ugliness of our sin. And, and I should have put this on the outline, and I don't know why I didn't. But see, we don't understand the ugliness of our sin because we don't understand the glory of God. See, God is the standard, not your neighbor. For we say this verse with we've all sinned, say it with me, all sinned and fallen short of the what? 
See, God is the standard. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A work's righteousness underestimates the ugliness of our sin. You know, we think, can I ever be a good enough person to achieve the glory of God? No way. No way. See, our sin is ugly. It's ugly. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful. Well, I learned it in the King James, but it says this in the New York said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. King James says it's desperately wicked. I like that. How do we know that the heart is desperately wicked? I don't know about yours, but I know mine. I know that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. There are none righteous, no, not one. And if I could think somehow in my mind that, Keith, if you just go to church, give your money, read your Bible, help little old ladies across the street, then you can, you can earn God's glory. How foolish. A works righteousness underestimates the glory, excuse me, underestimates the glory of God and the ugliness of our sin. A works righteousness underestimates the ugliness of our sin and the costliness of salvation. Someone who thinks they can do enough good, enough good works to earn God's favor, does not understand the nature of salvation or the cost of salvation. In just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And we do this as a reminder to remember Christ, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. But you know what? We're not going to always do this. You know when we're going to stop doing this? When? What scripture say? When he comes. <laughs> do this in my remembrance. Until he comes. He's going to come back. But we remind ourselves monthly here at Alberta Baptist Church that salvation is costly, that we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, his blood. And he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. In his body, he bore our sin. So if we think we could do enough good works to earn salvation, we underestimate the cost of salvation. See, our salvation costs God his son. Salvation is found in no one else. Acts 4.12. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See, we saw earlier that Paul points out the many problems that the Jews had with righteousness. Their main problem is the problem that many have today. We try to pursue a righteousness of our own, a righteousness of works. Paul said, chapter 10, verse three, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Let me ask you this morning, are are we guilty of the same thing? Do we seek to establish our own righteousness? Now, I grew up Southern Baptist, and, and I, I'm not trying to make light, but this was kind of our philosophy. We don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls that do. I mean, that, that's funny. I think it's funny, but that, I, I'm not trying to make light, but what am I saying? I grew up in a home. We went to church every Sunday, and Sunday was kind of a, an interesting thing at our house because 
my mom and dad, you could not go hunting on Sunday. Now, some people go hunting. We went hunting. But we couldn't go hunting on Sunday. You couldn't go fishing on Sunday. You couldn't go to the movies on Sunday. You couldn't go swimming on Sunday. Now, we could beat each other's brains out in the backyard playing football. But there were, just, there were these unwritten laws. Why? Because we love God. Brother Herbert, you ever heard things like that? Things you could do on Sunday, things you couldn't do? We don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do because we're good people. We're good people. You know, I think if I, you know, if I didn't understand the gospel, I could have been raised as a good man. I wouldn't smoke or drink or chew or all that. But I would have missed God's righteousness. God's righteousness has nothing to do with the traditions of men. Nothing. God's righteousness comes to us through the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who was righteous and offers us his righteousness. See, the Jews had a problem. They were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. So Paul dealt with this earlier in chapter 3. Look at this. I think we have this on the screen, 321. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that you shall not steal, do you steal? You Sunday school teachers, you deacons, us church member preachers, do we steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? What did Jesus say about adultery? Hey, it gets kind of personal then, doesn't it? You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust for her, you've committed adultery already with her in her heart. So so what's Paul saying there? You've got this law, you've got this standard of righteousness, but are you living by that standard? And every time we look at the law, it tells us, hey, no. We have a problem. Our righteousness does not measure up. We saw Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Why? Because that's my heart. That's your heart. We need to see the ugliness of our sin and the costliness of our salvation to truly appreciate the righteousness that God provides through faith in Christ. How can a man stand before God? We sang about it on the solid rock. Christ is our righteousness. Thank you, Jennifer, for the songs and the hymns today. Exactly what we're talking about. I dare not lean on the sweetest frame. I can't sing the song. I don't know the words, but I can't trust in myself, but only in Christ, okay? That's what Paul said in Philippians 3, 9. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, a righteousness that I think in my own eyes is good derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, today could be a wonderful day for many of you here today. Because in your mind, you've been trying to work out your own righteousness. You've got your own plan. Maybe you've never verbalized it, put it down on paper. But you know, I've seen these Christians and I I see what they do, how they act on Sunday. I see what they don't do. And I'm going to just kind of fall in and begin to act like them. And maybe I'm okay. And if I can imitate Christians, then I must be one. No. No. It's not the external righteousness. It's when we receive the gift of God's righteousness by faith. 
That's what Paul says in verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ offers to us the righteousness that many people miss today. The Jews missed it and many people missed it today. Because see, it's not as a result of works. It's a result, it's ours by faith. Paul said that the Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone. Look at that in verse 33. I, I like this analogy. You know, I, I said it earlier, the, 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 the Gentiles stumbled upon righteousness. They found it by accident and the Jews stumbled over righteousness. There, there's this picture, I think, of a race. Paul used a lot of athletic analogy and they're running this race. They're pursuing something and the Jews were pursuing with all their might and they tripped over, they stumbled over righteousness, the gift of God. While the Gentiles were just running along and all of a sudden they found it through the gospel. An amazing thing. R.C. Sproul says, the one whom God appointed as the cornerstone of his kingdom became a stumbling block, a stone of offense. Israel tripped over grace Israel was offended by the rock. They were ashamed of a suffering servant. Those who put their trust in that rock and don't trip over it will not be ashamed. They will not be put to shame. See, the Jews stumbled because the gospel requires faith in a Messiah, the one who came, one of their own, but he didn't come as a conquering king the first time. He came as a suffering servant, and that wasn't according to their agenda. The gospel is an offense. The offense of the cross is a requirement to turn from trusting in themselves and submit themselves to a crucified Lord. You know, I've heard it said many times, if, you had to, if a guy could give a million dollar donation to be saved, he'd do that in a heartbeat. But to get down on his knees and submit his life to Jesus, he'd never do that. Why? Because we're too proud. And so the, the gospel was a stumbling stone to the Jews because they had to submit themselves to the suffering servant. The gospel is offensive as we recognize that we have an infinite debt which no works can ever repay. It's too good to be true almost, isn't it? An infinite debt that no works could ever repay. We have to humble ourselves and by faith trust in another. Receiving God's righteousness by faith demands that we forsake all dependence upon self and self-efforts for salvation. And we willingly submit ourselves to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The Jews didn't want to do this. They stumbled over God's righteousness. People today have the same response. They were determined to pursue righteousness through their own efforts by keeping the law. That's what Paul means when he says Christ hears a stumbling stone, a stone of stumbling, verse 33, and a rock of offense. The stumbling stone, though, the scripture tells us, and Peter reminds us, is the very cornerstone. I'm not a builder nor the son of a builder, but the cornerstone is the foundation stone. Everything else lines up on the cornerstone. That's the rock on which we stand. That's the foundation of the kingdom of God. He is the foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a stumbling stone to the Jews and to all who disbelieve, but he is the rock of our salvation. One day, all of us will stand before God. Those who believe in the gospel will stand on the firm foundation of Christ's righteousness. 
Let me just stop here for just a second. And this is much more than just about standing before God one day. You know, we're, hopefully you've thought about that. I know when I was 16 years old, I was scared of dying. I knew I was going to hell. And the thought of dying scared me to death, really. But later, I found out through the gospel, there's no fear. See, there's no fear in dying, but there's no fear. What do we stand on today? Are there people here who think, you know, God loves me more when I'm good and God loves me less when I'm bad? Is your relationship with the Father based on your performance? If that's the way you think, then you've missed the gospel. You've missed the gospel. God does not accept us based on our performance. He he accepts us based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's the key for us. You know, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Paul said, no, how can we? Because we belong to Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. Lord, our Master. And if we genuinely believe the gospel, we serve him. We love him. I love what Peter said. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, obtaining as outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. But we love Christ because what he's done for us. And he gives us his spirit who indwells us, who bears witness with us that we are the children of God. So it's not just an intellectual ascent. The Bible says it's like being born again. Isn't that a good analogy? It's like becoming a new creature in Christ. So don't just think, hey, I believe that so I can do what I want. No, you're a new creature in Christ. But those who trust in Christ, they will stand before God. Those who believe the gospel will stand on the firm foundation of Christ's righteousness. Those who reject the gospel will stand before the Lord condemned by their own works. Their own works. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. He is the fulfillment, the goal of the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. All that the law does, it it points us toward Christ. It points us toward Christ. When we read the Old Testament, we read the law, the law screams to us of Calvary, that there is a lamb, a sacrifice, who would be offered for us. And it comes to us by God's grace. Kenneth Weiss says, it is not surprising that a righteousness of this sort should be found, but even by those who are not in quest of it. Its nature is that it is brought and offered to men and faith is simply the act of appropriating it. You know, as we think about this, why would God do it this way? Why would God offer us righteousness by faith? I can tell you simply, when we receive righteousness by faith, God gets the glory, not us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. God offered it to us. We received it by faith. God, what a wonderful God you are. God gets the glory. I'll close real quickly. Micah 7, 9. Now, if Micah's like Many of your Bibles in the clean part of your Bible, so you don't need to turn there. But Micah says this. This is the most beautiful picture of the gospel, but it's in the Old Testament. Micah says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. What are we doing there? We're admitting that we're sinners. And I deserve God's punishment. I deserve God's punishment. I deserve God's wrath because I've sinned. 
then until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. I can't handle this myself. I'm guilty before God and my only hope is that God executes justice for me. Now, what is justice? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death. That would be justice. But what does God do? God is just, Paul said in Romans 3, and the justifier. (laughs) He executes justice for us. He took our place. He pleads my case and executes justice for me. Then what will happen? He will bring me out to the light. What a beautiful picture. And I will see his righteousness. I will behold the righteousness of God that was given to me because he executed justice on my behalf. I deserved sin, condemnation. Christ took that sin, condemnation upon himself, offers me his righteousness, and I will come out to the light, stand in the light as a child of God. Declared righteous. Paul says, not a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is found in Christ. The righteousness of God. He is the one who pleads my case. He is the just and the justifier. He executes justice for me. He paid the debt I owe. He will bring me out in the light, the light of his righteousness. I can stand before God righteous, not by my righteousness, but his the righteousness God provides for me in Christ. I would ask you this morning as I close, are you a Christian? Have you been saved? Do you know that you've been declared righteous in the eyes of God? Because you are not trusting in your own good works, but in the work of Christ. We come to the Lord's table to celebrate that work in just a moment. But before we do, we always do. We have an invitation. This is for those, if you don't know Christ, come today. If you're trusting in your own goodness, own righteousness, come today. Come to Jesus. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast them out. You come to Jesus today. And you can receive his righteousness by faith. If you're a Christian today, you know what it says about the Lord's table. That a man or woman should examine themselves before they come to the Lord's table. Paul told the church at Corinth, many of them had come to the table in an unworthy manner. In other words, they were not confessed up. They had sin in their life. We do this monthly. You know, baptism is the front door and Lord's Supper guards the back door. We don't want anybody just kind of drifting off in sin and getting kind of comfortable in disobedience. We want you to be shocked. (laughs) Wake up. Examine yourself this morning. What's my life all about? Am I walking with Christ? Am I right with God? Am I right with man? That's why we come to the Lord's table to examine ourselves. But first, the invitation.